Um, if you have a Bible, grab it. Go to Luke chapter 9. Uh, that is where we're going to be. If you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back uh, that you are uh, welcome to grab. There are gift to you. We'd love for you to uh, have that as a gift if you don't own one. Um, I'm going to set these here. Uh, good. Well, um, let me just announce something real quick before we get in, just so I don't forget on the back end. Uh, if, if you're new or visiting, just, just, this is just a uh, family announcement, and you're welcome to know about it too, but we've been working on what's called the, the Paramus Project, which is a space that we've been working on in Paramus, kind of the uh, central area of Bergen County where we feel like God has been uh, leading us for a long time. And so uh, I wanted you guys to have, uh, if you have a pen and paper, your phone, March 13th is going to be an open house uh, where we would love you guys to come from between the hours of 1 and 3 uh, on March 13th. That's a Sunday that's following the service between the hours of 1 and 3 just to uh, see where it is, find out where it is, get your bearings as you go in. It's not going to be fully completed, but enough completed to where you can enjoy kind of seeing what it's going to be and uh, also so you don't get lost. Trust me, if, you're, if you plan on showing up the first time uh, uh, on a Sunday when we open, you're probably just not going to find it. Not because it's hard to find, it's just, I don't know why, no one can find it. It's like the Bermuda Triangle. Everybody calls me going, 348 Evelyn Street, I don't see it. I'm like, well, you're right in front of it. Oh, okay, it's right there. So uh, we just want to make sure you know where it is. Okay, there's a virtual golf place in the front. We're in the back. There's CrossFit in the front. Uh, we're all going to do a workout before service every week. Um, no, we're not. That's, that was a joke. Okay. Good. So just, just, just remember that, okay? Um, and then, uh, it, again, let's go to Luke chapter 9. Let me just open us in prayer that God would maybe uh, align our hearts, focus our hearts to what he might want uh, us to hear from him today. So, uh, God, I know that many of us come in this room with just so many different places um, in our being. Uh, God, so many emotions, feelings, stresses, pressures, anxieties, joys, cares. And God, we're thankful that, that this beautiful revelation that you've given us is what is appropriate for no matter what season we find ourselves. God, even in the fullest of joy, it's good news, and even in the worst of circumstances, it's good news. Um, so God, be gracious to us this morning. Help us to hear you. God, may the Holy Spirit be kind in opening our eyes and ears. God, we know that there's nothing we can understand in of ourselves. God, we need the illumination of the Spirit to do that. God, thank you for all that we are learning about Jesus. May he be the hero of all that we listen and say and be as we leave today. May we leave more transformed into the image of Jesus than when we came in. And in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 9. Here is what has been happening is uh, here at Church of Bergen, we love to just kind of walk through books of the Bible so you kind of get the, the fullest understanding of what uh, God intends for us to understand and know about himself and himself primarily revealed through his incarnate son, which is Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at the gospel according to Luke. He's a physician. He's a guy who's writing this uh, book, this, this, this gospel account of all that Jesus did in his life and teachings. Now, not, not covering everything. It's not exhaustible. It's specific because he wants you to know who Jesus is and that he wants you to be transformed by who Jesus is because you can trust his life and his teachings. And so he's been writing to this guy, Theophilus, who is a, a prominent Roman official, and he likely is skeptical the things of Christianity, the things of Jesus, and so he is just laying out this account going, hey, here's why you can trust Jesus, and here's why just knowing who he is doesn't leave you the same, okay, so that's why we're going to say all the time, we come in here not just to hear facts, not just to know truths, not just to be moved by a text or, or some sermon, but to be transformed by that thing, because uh, we believe the Holy Spirit is active, that actually transforms our very being, that God actually enters into his temple, his people, when he saves them from sin, not just 
on the cross objectively, but in the very work of his person and nature in saving you, redeeming you, adopting you, making you his own so that you don't function the same. Your loves aren't the same. Your desires aren't the same. Your affections aren't the same. And so um, we're going to see another occurrence of where I really believe this is one of the most profound revelations in this gospel yet. Uh, that Luke's going to write, and it's basically the, the transfiguration. I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with this, and I think uh, there's some beautiful things that, that we're going to see. So um, here, here's this morning what, what we're coming off of. So as this is one of the most, um, I'm sorry, can I get, uh, Jim, you in here? Just a glass of water when you get a chance. I'm like, uh, I see myself not speaking in like 10 minutes. Um, so here's what's happening. There, there's in between his, his birth, so post his birth and pre his death, this is one of the most important revelations you're going to see. You're going you're to witness, you're going to see, read about from him. And so he just came off last week laying before us some really difficult words. Okay, I'm actually really glad he came back because okay? I didn't even feel like coming back after last week because Jesus says, hey, if I'm the Christ, if this profession is who you say I am, then, then, then what does that mean for you? Now you're going to live as if I'm the Christ. There's going to be allegiance, there's going to be denying yourself. There's going to be taking up your cross. There's going to be all of those things. And so um, we saw that we're going to maybe be, uh, you know, feel rejected or people are going to shame us. But it's better to stand firm in our witness of the gospel and have the God of the universe at the day of judgment say, I'm shaming you. Right? That's a lot more terrifying than us witnessing some rejection or us being afraid of family or what people think. He says, hey, let me, let me tell you, I came obscurely and humbly first. When I come back the second time, I'm coming in my fullness of glory. Okay, and so he's going to roll out here as we see this, what that means, this second coming that he alluded to last week. Now let me give you guys something to help you kind of understand your Bibles that will help you understand this text, okay? What you'll see throughout the scriptures are what are kind of like near prophecies and far prophecies, okay? So if you don't understand that, you're going to think this is a little bit weird and I don't think you're going to follow what Jesus is doing. So a prophet would give a prophecy, some would be fulfilled, some would be manifested right there, like right in their existence as they were alive, and that would help them understand that they could trust the future prophecy, okay? So, so what would happen is that would, that would help you know that the future occurrence, whether you saw it or not, was actually going to come to pass. And so here you have Jesus giving a, current, giving a future prophecy in his second coming. He's going to show them, hey, I'm going to prove to you that that's going to happen because I'm going to pull back the curtain and show you a little glimpse of my glory and the second coming, okay? Does that make sense? So, so knowing that's how it works, this is to affirm to the disciples that, hey, what's coming in the second advent is true. It's going to help them be confident in that. And so uh, let's look real quick at the verse last week to help us get rolling this morning. Um, As a reminder, last week, chapter 27 is where we landed the plane. He said this, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, there are people here listening to me who you're not going to be alive when I come again the second time. Okay, so so. Because that, knowing that no one is going to be present for that who's standing there, some of you guys standing here are going to get a glimpse of it. You're going to get a glimpse of the second advent. You're going to get a glimpse of what it's going to be like when I return in all of my glory. Now, the disciples are naturally thinking, you just told us you were going to die. So, so how do we know that's not the end of the story? Right? How do we know that that's not it? How are we going to, how are we going to see this thing? What, what, what is the, the future to come? And so eight days later, he does this for Peter, James, and John. Look at verse 28. It says, now about eight days after the, these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Okay, so it's been about eight days since Jesus said, hey, some of you here, 
You're not going to taste death before you see a glimpse. You're going to see a, a preview. You're going to see a trailer of the second coming of me. And, and what's amazing is as he says this, he takes Peter, James, and John. Now, some of you guys are like, yeah, I know that's obvious. And, and I don't know why. They're always kind of the inner circle. They're the ones I'm sure all the other disciples are consistently jealous of. And he kind of trains them to train the others. So they're always kind of close to Jesus, with Jesus. And, and he takes them all up on this mountain. And I think there's a, a number of reasons you could read into why he's taking three. You can track all the way back to Deuteronomy where he says if any witness is going to be viable or verifiable, you've got to take two or three witnesses. That will follow in the New Testament. So you've basically got Jesus saying, hey, this thing is, needs to be validated, so let's get enough people here that can witness this and then testify to it. Okay, so he's got three of his closest disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus takes them up on a mountain as they're walking up the hill to this mountain. Now this isn't, I'm sure, a hill. This is like mountain, mountain. So I don't know how long it took them to get to the top, but the whole trek up, they have no idea what they're about to witness. They have no idea they're about to witness one of the most profound revelations of Jesus Christ yet. They don't have a clue what's going to hit them. Verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face, this is Jesus, was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. <laughs> so as Jesus goes up the mountain to pray, the disciples are sleeping. Okay, you're going to see that in a few verses. Hey, listen, so if, if, if you fall asleep at prayer meetings, you're in good company. This happens all the time. These disciples, seriously, you can look at almost every single time he's praying, the disciples are sleeping, okay? And they always need to be woken up, okay? So they always need to be made aware of what's going on. Now, listen, if there's a, if there's a bad time to sleep, it's now, okay? If there's a bad time to not know what's going on, it's when Jesus is actually transfiguring into what is the very glory and essence and nature of God, Okay, so they're, they're in a deep sleep, they're tired, they're weary, they're passed out, and here Jesus starts to actually become transfigured. So, you're going to see one of, the thing that's one of the things that's going to happen at his second coming is what he looks like. Now, now, here's what I mean. Up until this point, everything that people witnessed about the manifestations of God through Jesus' ministry was in clear human form. Right? I mean, his birth. Clearly, looked, looked like a, he didn't look like an alien baby or some glowing light baby with Christmas lights. Like, that's not what he looked like. He was a, just looked like any other male baby being born. When he grew up in the synagogue, he looked like any young adolescent adult. When he went and did miracles and cast out demons and did all of those teachings and healings, he looked like, another, he looked like a man. Total human. So, so here, what we're starting to see is not the physical form that people understood, but the glorified form. There's a glorified aspect to Jesus that no one had seen in his ministry yet. And so here he's starting to alter and take on this glorified state. It says his face was altered. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. His clothes are dazzling white. There's light coming through Jesus, out of Jesus. It's not Jesus kind of being light. It's the light of God shining through him. And Matthew uses the word, which I love, that, that means metamorphosis, metamorphosis. You know, like you, you see that, I don't know, those insects that are in cocoons or whatever, and then they metamorph into something else. You're going, wow, that, that looks, that's much more beautiful. That's much more bright. It doesn't look the same, but you know it's the same thing. So Jesus' face is being altered. His 
looking like the shining sun. His clothes are dazzling white. This is God. This is God. This is one of the times where Luke is showing you Jesus isn't just a man. He's God. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at your Bible, all the times that God reveals himself, manifests himself, is what's called his Shekinah glory. It's the light of God. It's the very light of the glory of God. You'll see him in the, in the, in the garden with um, Adam and Eve. He actually tracks him down in his glory. You have Moses on the Mount Sinai. He's the fire. He's the pillar of cloud. And then he's the fire at night. All that is the Shekinah glory. You have it near the tent, the tabernacle of making. You have it with Ezekiel seeing a vision and John in Revelation and Isaiah and Isaiah 6. You have these, these things where you see them behold something that is, that is otherworldly and it is something they can't even understand. I mean, Psalms will go on to say that the the true glory of God actually is light that's unapproachable. Okay, so what that means is they're not seeing every bit of it, but they're seeing the fringe of it enough where if you saw it in its fullness, you'd be incinerated. Like you, you can't even stand near it. And here Jesus is starting to reveal and demonstrate that he is the very radiance, which is the glory of God. He's showing them, when I, when I return the second time, you have no idea the blazing glory that's going to come forth. Yeah, I came humbly, I came humanly, I came obscurely, but, but the second time, I'm just going to blow your socks off. Okay? I'm coming back full throttle. And as he's, as he's doing this, we're seeing never has the nature of God been so accurately manifested or seen than in this moment. And you get this insane picture in Revelation 21 where it says the future heavens, the future New Jerusalem, you're not going to need lamps, you're not going to need candles, you're not going to need flashlights, you're not going to need a moon, you're not going to need a sun. Why? Because Jesus is going to be the very light of heaven. He's actually the light by which all those jewels in the New Jerusalem, the light is shining through and bouncing off, making it inexplicable beauty. That's his light. Never seen anything like it. And here Jesus is the light of the glory of God, embodying it, embodying really one of his names, light of the world. Now, um, you can look throughout the Old Testament pictures of where people see this, right? They get, a, they get a glimpse of it. Like he lets them have a vision of it. One of the ones that I love, because this is what's being revealed here, okay, as they're sleeping, okay, as the disciples are sleeping. Look at, flip back to Ezekiel chapter 1. This is one of my favorites. And, and, and Ezekiel kind of parallels John in Revelation 4 as to like what he sees and what it looks like. And Ezekiel 1 says this, above the expanse over their heads. He's talking about these angels that he saw. He's getting a vision of the throne of God, which is Jesus on the throne. And he sees these angels. So he's saying, uh, above these angels, above the expanse of their heads, what was looked like. Now look, this is what's so crazy. He's describing what we would think would be a, a person, Right? Like a, like a man, but he's, he's using words that are showing. It's not like he's a person person. Like he's struggling for words. He's trying to figure out how to describe something that is so otherworldly, so beautiful, so intoxicating. He, he can't even come up with the right vocabulary or description. So he goes on and says, man, it, it looked like a throne of sapphire. Like I think that's what it looked like. 
I mean, I don't really have any other English vocabulary to use to tell you what it, what it looks like. And high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up like glowing metal. So he's going, okay, you know when like, you stick something in the fire, like a piece of metal, and it, and it glows and it gets really hot? And it, it just, I don't know, I guess it was kind of like that, kind of like that beauty. And then he goes, um, as if full of fire. I don't know. I mean, I guess it was an, also full of fire. I mean, I don't know, kind of looked like glowing metal and, and also full of fire. And then he says, um, and from that down looked like fire also. So I don't know. Top half like fire glowing, bottom half fire also. He's just struggling for words. Because how do you put into description that which is utterly set apart from you? Right? I mean, guys, this is the beauty of the future kingdom, the future heaven. We're going to lay our eyes on something that we have dreamed of, thought of, read about, that, that is still something that, that you won't even be able to contain in your very being unless you're in a glorified state. Because your human body can't handle it. And he's just going on here about how from his waist up is like glowing metal full of fire from there down fire as brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow on the, cloud, on the clouds on a rainy day. He's like, okay, now let me give you another description. You know when it just pours rain and then a beautiful rainbow comes out? Yeah, it was kind of like that. He's just struggling for descriptions, trying to help us understand. This is the appearance of the likeness of what? The glory of the Lord. What I'm telling you about, what I'm explaining to you, this is what the glory of the Lord is, looks like. Now, obviously, he's not completely exhausting all that it really looks like. He's trying to give us a taste. And I love the response. When I saw it, I collapsed. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to find out words. I'm trying to explain to you what it looked like. All I know is when I was done, I fell over. I fell over. Now, that's a response of everybody in the scriptures when they get a, just a scene. You're going to see Peter, James, and John ultimately fall on their faces according to uh, Matthew's account. When they, when they see God in all of his glory and the cloud come. Look at what Hebrews 1 says. I love this verse in the New Testament pointing back to this. But in these last days now he who is God has spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus Christ whom he's appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. Then this statement. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when you see Jesus, you're seeing the glory of God. What that means is he is literally the light shining forth out of God. Okay, he is all, the exact imprint, the exact essence, the exact nature, the exact everything of that which is the glory of God. This is so amazing that, that Jesus expresses all of his attributes and all of his essence and everything perfectly. That Jesus does this, and, and here he expresses not only that, but I love this, just as the sun radiates and permeates light, right, and it hits the earth, and what does it do? It, it, it gives growth to the earth, it gives light to the earth out of the darkness. Jesus does this to the human heart, doesn't he? The rays of him come out over the darkened heart of the soul, and it gives light, and it gives life, and it helps us grow. Amazing. Back to the text. This is what is happening. This is what's being revealed here. Now, it's enough to have Jesus there. Now we got Moses and Elijah. <laughs> They're like theological giants, right? I mean, it's enough just to have Jesus radiating in blazing glory, and now we've got Moses and Elijah with him. They show up, and, and look, there are, there are so many 
scholars and commentators on, on why exactly they're there and what the reasons are. Let me just give you the one that I think makes the most sense, um, is that you've got Moses. He's basically the one who gave God's people the law, gave God's people the sacrificial system, all in a point. Not to say you have to keep this, but to point outside of itself to say you can't do it, you're going to need somebody who can Okay, so someone needs to fulfill this law for you. Someone needs to live a perfect, righteous life. There needs to be a debt paid, a ransomed, you know, uh, ransoming happening. All these things need to happen before this can actually occur and people can be made right with God. So you have Moses there who basically symbolizes the law. I mean, he, he's the one who over and over and over again in the New Testament, you know, or Old Testament, is, is kind of the God that you think of when you think of sacrificial system. When you think of Passover, when you think about him leading the people out of slavery, out of bondage. And then you've got Elijah, who's a prophet. And every prophet was to point to what? The coming of the Messiah who would resolve and deal with sin. So it's almost like you have the law and the prophets with Jesus. And here's what they're discussing. Amazing. They're discussing with the very one who is the fulfiller of that law and the prophets, right? I mean, Moses, who led the Exodus, led the people out of bondage and slavery, out of Egypt, is talking with the very one who through his Exodus, through his departure, will lead people out of their slavery and bondage to sin and into marvelous light, right? They're actually discussing this with him. I mean, Elijah, who is a prophet, who is, who is foretelling this Messiah that was to come, is actually talking with him about this, how, how it's going to be finally realized. You know what's crazy to me, too? They're not talking with him like they don't know him. Like the moment he, Elijah left his you know, earth in his chariot of fire, which I, I hope God takes me that way, right? Like that would be sweet. I mean, that, that's, then you got Moses who died kind of a weird death. No one could really find his body. You got both these guys sitting with Jesus, having a conversation, a guy they've been worshiping since the moment they entered future glory. Now, they're not in the new Jerusalem. They're not in the fully recreated earth. I don't believe they're in their full resurrected glorified body, but they have been with him. They're having a conversation they haven't just met him, they know him. Amazing. They're having a conversation about the future death of Jesus, about the wrath-absorbing cross of Christ, about his resurrection to come. They're talking about it. Wouldn't you love to be in that conversation? Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall? Wouldn't you love to not be asleep? Right? And here you have them confirming Jesus' deity, confirming his upcoming death and resurrection, confirming that it's all going to end in glory. It's not going to end in death. There's going to be something after that. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Yeah, you bet. You got to be in a... Some of you guys are like, man, I'm a heavy sleeper. I sleep through anything. You sleep through the blazing glory of God being revealed... There's something wrong. You need some, You don't need NyQuil, okay? You need something to wake you up. Here, as they were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter, always the guy who speaks up, right, always has something to say. As he speaks up, he says, Master, I love that, Lord, he's appealing to who Jesus is. is it, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. You know, there, there are some times in life where, where here they're waking up, they're tired, they're worn out, they're rubbing their eyes. What in the world is going on? Did rapture happen? What is, 
He's in his glory. They're trying to figure it out. And all of a sudden, as they see what is happening, I, listen, I don't think there wasn't a sense of, like, trembling holy fear here. Yeah, I think there absolutely was. But I don't know how Peter, in the midst of this, seeing this, I don't know how Peter was able to speak up and say anything. I don't know if it reveals arrogance. I don't know, if it, I don't know what it reveals. But he goes, hey, Jesus. I know you're in blazing glory. I know we're witnessing something crazy, but can I just give you a suggestion right here? It's insane. I mean, you're reading the text with me, right? I mean, I always say, get in the story. Don't just read that and be like, wow, it's crazy, man. Jesus is blazing glory, like Ezekiel 1. And Peter goes, hey, let me just interject here. And he interrupts the conversation with Moses and Elijah. You just shut up and listen to them. You don't interrupt them. He interrupts and says, hey, you know what? I really love this. This is what I'm talking about. So let's get some tents. Let's make one for you, our boy, Moses and Elijah. Let's all just stay here and never leave, right? Isn't that insane? You can laugh. I laughed at that. I'm going, that's insane. But here's the thing. He didn't understand what he was saying. He, he didn't understand that the second coming wasn't supposed to come yet. He didn't understand that before there was ever going to be a crown, there had to be a cross, Right? There had to be death. There had to be suffering. There had to be a ransom life. There had to be a righteous life. There had to be a debt paid. There had to be bloodshed. This is a trailer, Peter. This is the preview. The historic ushering in of the final reign of the Messiah, the second coming, is not yet. It's not yet. You don't know what you're saying. You don't understand. What you want is good, but you don't understand the plan. Now understand, this was the best thing Peter had witnessed yet in his life, guys. This was the best thing that James and John had ever witnessed in their life up until this point. I mean, sharing in a part of the glory of Christ. I mean, I love this a lot more than you saying you're going to go die and us picking up our cross and being rejected and shamed. I mean, I like this. Let's just usher it in. Let's pitch our tents. Right? Let's do it. Let's just, let's reside. Let's hang out. Let's stay here. I want to stay here. How many of you guys can identify with Peter? It's just amazing. In verse 34, because Peter doesn't understand what he's saying, because Peter interrupts Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as, as they have now left the scene, or are going to leave the scene, verse 34, as he was saying these things, as Peter's talking, now listen. If there's one thing I don't want in my life, okay, one is God to ever oppose me. Second thing is him to ever feel like he has to interrupt me. And as Peter is saying all of this to Jesus, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, Matthew says terrified, and they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Okay, as Peter is providing his profound counsel to Jesus. His profound, finite counsel to the infinite Jesus. That's sarcasm. <laughs> okay, just so I, I left, man. They, my pastor said, man, Peter's got better counsel than, no. As, as he's giving puny, insignificant God interrupts him 
says, hey, shut up. Listen to him. I mean, how would you feel if as you're having a conversation, God had to come down in a cloud and be like, hey, you don't know what you're saying. Man, this is my son. This is the very radiance of my glory. You listen to him. Strong words, right, from God. And here's what's amazing. As this massive cloud engulfs them, they're naturally afraid. They're, they fell on their faces, Matthew says. And, and that's what happens when you experience the presence of a holy God, right? I mean, here's what we love to do. We love to counsel God and say things about God and tell him how he should order our life and how he should do things. When in all reality, if you actually beheld him for one second, you wouldn't say anything. You wouldn't say anything. I mean, how many of us, how many of us would it be good for us just to sit and bask in the truth of just his nature? Right? To have a little bit of a higher view of who he is. I think that would help us resolve a lot of the things that come out of our mouths. And here he stops Peter and says, you don't know what you're saying. And I love that he once again claims the deity of his son just like the baptism. This is my son. This is God in human flesh. Fully God and fully man. And when they get up from being on their faces, the cloud is gone. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Jesus is the only one there. It was but a preview. Trailer's over. Second coming's not yet. It's going to come, but there has to be a death and there has to be a resurrection. Now, what's interesting here is, right, they didn't tell anybody. This happens all the time. And it happens for different reasons in the gospel. We've covered that, right? They don't tell anyone. Now, what was the purpose of Jesus taking them up the mountain, giving them this amazing display in full IMAX, 3D, 4D, 5D? I don't know. They could not, never seen anything like it. What's the point if they can't leave and then tell people? I mean, are we supposed to be up here so that we're witnesses or two or three of us? Now, can't we go and tell everybody about the second coming, about the glory to come? And Matthew answers it for us in his account, Matthew 17. It's on the screen. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision. Why? Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. There's going to be a time where you're going to tell everybody. It's not now. There's going to be a death, like I said, but there's also going to be a resurrection. And listen, if you tell people of this before there is a resurrection, before there is a death, then there might be a premature hoisting up of me as king. And here's what you've got to understand. When I resurrect myself back from the dead, people are then going to fully see that I did not come just to free them from political and social and economic oppression. I did not come to conquer Rome. I came to conquer sin. They're going to see that, and then you can tell everybody which he will unleash in the Great Commission, right? Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. And this is why one of the names Jesus gives himself is light of the world. He is the very light of the glory of God. And when that light shines out over your darkened, sin-stained soul where you by nature, by action, by choice 
choose to belittle him in all his glory, choose to push down all that he deserves rightly as king, and you live your life as if you don't need him, you don't need him to be on the throne of your heart, you are God, you make the decisions, you do all of those things, you belittle the glory that is that and the enjoyment of that by taking all that he gives you and using that for just self-absorption and abuse and self-worship and not for him. Man, when, that, that ex- when that's exposed, right, the light lays you bare, you see it. Right, And you can't crawl away from the light. You can't get out from under it. And here's what's amazing. The light of the world meets you in your sin. It exposes your sin. But it's not met with judgment. It's met with forgiveness. Because the very light of the world actually becomes the darkness of your sin. Like the very light of all that is. Where one day in heaven you won't see an ounce of darkness. You won't walk in a closet. You won't slip under a rug. You won't be anywhere where anything's hidden. Because he will be the light of all things. And everyone is walking in. Perfect conscience because Jesus paid for all of it, ransomed all of it. He became the darkness of all of your sins. So all of the secret things you battle, the the shame, the lust, the folly, the the discouragement, also to the very things that you think you do well that earn you favor and right with God, he just lays all of that open. He exposes all of it. When you meet Jesus, when you hear about the holy person and work of Jesus, that's what happens. The light of the world just lays you bare. You're under a microscope and you have nowhere to go, right? That's how we get saved. And he pushes the darkness back, and he takes his life in what's called the great exchange. He takes all the darkness, all the hidden secrets, all the lingering lusts and fantasies and everything that you want to say you don't, everything, every secret you have in your soul that no one knows about, he takes all those things, becomes that darkness for you, and brings you what? It says, into a kingdom of marvelous light. We're not, now you walk free from that. You're free from that. I don't have to live in darkness anymore. I don't have to hide anymore because someone's paying for that for me. I mean, isn't that the, the beauty of when your sin is exposed? You know it's, it's met and dealt with and that you don't have to deal with it and pay the debt for it? And Jesus does that in becoming the darkness of your sin. I, I just, I love that he does that. You know, let me um, close with just a, a final thought. Um, that uh, just grab me. Have you, ever, have you ever go back to Peter? Have you ever felt like Peter where... You're like, Lord, I just, I want you to come. <laughs> I'm tired. I feel like I'm lacking meaning, lacking purpose. I feel like life is mundane. I feel like I'm numb to a lot of things. I know you. I love you. I want to pursue you. But, but can we just set up our tents now? I mean, can't we just in, enjoy glory now? I mean, why do I have to walk through this? Why do I have to be in this position? Why do I have to be in this family situation? Why do I have to be in this? And here's the thing. Um. You want to know why we're all still here? (laughs) Because he's not done. And it's not that he's not just not done. I mean, Acts 17 and other places will say that he has specifically predetermined you to live, work, operate, function in a place to be an image bearer of his name and to see more people come to know the saving work of Jesus Christ, that it is never random. So, So what does... That means for us that you're actually caught up in something that has much greater glory to it, right? It's not just that you're in a random nine to five. It's not that you're trying to plow it out in your marriage or your family. Or there are are greater glories above this. Because here's the thing. Do you know what the glory of Jesus Christ has to do with day-to-day living? Like, have you ever thought about that? 
Like, what does the glory of Christ have to do? How does that affect Mike Reed waking up at 6.30, whenever Jackson decides to wake up? What, ha- what happens when I wake up and I head out and I do the things that God has commissioned me to do? Live where God has commissioned me to live. Operate in relationships where God has commissioned me to operate in relationships. It's because your worth and your status and your virtue has nothing to do with the what but the why. You don't do anything for you, ultimately. You do it for his glory. You do it to enjoy and portray and celebrate the supreme worth of God and all that is the glory of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians or somewhere in there, right? No matter what you do, eat, drink, anything, do it all to the glory of God. So here's what that means. No one's life, no one's life is menial. No one's. Whether you're the CEO, president, pastor, janitor, teacher, student, none of you, no one's life is menial. Because you're not going into that vocation, into that lane, into that marriage to try to make yourself happy. To try to make yourself of more value or greater worth. You're entering into those places to give and enjoy and bring glory to God because there's massive purpose in it. I mean, you are literally living, rubbing shoulders with in the environment that God wants you. Like, I cannot say this enough. I just want us to understand that God's trying to lift our eyes constantly to the transfiguration of the glory of Christ going, hey, that's what you're living for. You live for, you do your work for the glory of Christ. And as people see that, we want to see other people transformed by that. So there's great glorious meaning. So he commissions us in Matthew 28 and says, hey, you go, you work, you tell, you tell everybody that social, that the justice, oppression, death, sin, it's all done away with. It's pushed back in Jesus and he saves you out of just a life of no meaning, no purpose, no worth, nothing, and replaces it with this unimaginable worth that's in the Son of Jesus Christ, all based in what he has done and who you are now. The status of your marriage isn't the big thing. Like the status of your job isn't the big thing. God's glory is the big thing. Like like how many classes you finish in school isn't the big thing. It's part of that, and it's to serve that purpose. But God's glory is the big thing. And here's why this matters, is because this is why you were built. This is why you were made. This is why when the non-Christian constantly goes after other things and does not live to glorify Christ but lives to glorify, insert the blank, they constantly run out of steam. So, So if we're Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, you realize what's at stake. You realize what you're living for. You realize how you were built so you know that as a Christian you're not a joy killer. You're all about pleasure. You're all about joy, and you know the best possible way towards that is enjoying God's glory. And what does that mean? That means just operating in the ways that he has organized life to operate and believing that and then experiencing greater fullness of life as you walk in that. And one of those things is believing and remembering that your life is not menial. One of those things is remembering that he's organized your life, he's put you in your work, he's put you in your neighborhood, he's put you next to people, he's put you everywhere in conversations in your family For divine, glorious reasons. That's amazing to know that. 
That is, for me, that is so encouraging to know that he did not place me at any church. He said, no, this is where you're going to pastor. And when I get discouraged and I get disgruntled and I get bitter and I get upset and I get anxious, he just brings me back to, no, 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 don't look over the fence. This is where. This is where. I didn't make a mistake. And all of a sudden I find that joy in an unexpected place because I remember that the sovereign God of the universe actually cared enough and knows enough about me that he will place me particularly in exactly where I'm supposed to be for his great glory and for his great praise and for the enjoyment of him. So that's how I will grow and be fashioned more into his likeness than somewhere else. And so I have to trust him. Um, guys, this, this is the, the fundamental dis, uh, sin of man, right? I think one of the best definitions of sin is just when you make anything other than God ultimate, right? And so what that means is, and how this all ends at the end of the day, let's land the plane and let's be finished. I know some of you guys are like, this. <laughs> Sorry, coming, <laughs> coming at you a little bit today. In love, in grace. Okay, so... If this is the fundamental sin of man and Jesus is displaying his worth and his glory and there's a gospel of the transfiguration essentially, there's hope for us, right? If it, we don't, there's hope for us if we're putting our hope in the tent that is Jesus and his exodus and his death and his resurrection. Because Paul will actually say in Philippians 3, he'll actually transform our lowly bodies into his glorious one through the same power that he used to raise himself from the dead. Here, so here's how this ends for us. Um, if you take anything in your life and you use that as the vehicle to find joy and find satisfaction and find deliverance even maybe functionally from the darkness of your sin, you'll constantly run out of steam and you'll constantly grow anxious and you'll constantly grow bitter and you'll constantly grow discontent. So if you take your marriage... And you think that the marriage exists for you to be more happy, more fulfilled, you'll keep losing steam. Because the marriage was never given to you to be happy and find worth and find fulfillment. It was given to you to worship and see more of his glory. If you take your job and, and you think your job exists for you to find contentment and joy and everlasting satisfaction, then you will eventually hit the wall over and over, not realizing your work, God placed you there as a vehicle to be an image bearer of his name and give great glory to God in the ways that he's wired you and placed you. Relationships. Like God didn't give you the relationships you're in so that you could be satisfied. Maybe that's why you have so many arguments. With, because you're putting an expectation on them that God never placed on them. Those are all vehicles, guys. Everything we have is a vehicle. And if you take the vehicle and you use it to play golf, it's not going to work out. If you take an automobile to get you somewhere, drive your heart somewhere, and you use it to do something else with it, then that makes no sense, right? So that is what, in seeing the glory of Christ, affects our day-to-day. -day. So we're not like Peter. We don't say, let's just stay here. Our eyes are on what God is asking of us, and we understand. We don't not understand what we're saying. You know, I, I just... Let's just do some soul searching this morning as, as we close. Um, maybe just let the light of the world, the glory that is Jesus Christ, just, just, just expose your heart a little bit today. Let it just shine on your heart, right? Here's what I love. It doesn't matter. No, no one can do that other than him. Let him just do that for a moment here.
as we close. And, and let him reveal in your life the functional gods that you worship, that you love, that you hold up as a standard. Maybe to cover sin. Maybe some of you guys like to use it as a camouflage. Maybe ask him to give you greater belief and understanding in what's at stake and the meaning. God's glory is the big thing. That proclaiming, telling, advancing the kingdom of God that, that he lets us be an image bearer, a fraction of the light of Christ where you live, in your marriage, in your church, in your work, in your relationships. Ask him to lift your eyes. Ask him to interrupt you like he did Peter. Stop. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what he's saying. And what Jesus has said and is saying to all of us is, you can trust me. Hey, my second coming, I'll come when I'm ready. I'll come when the time is right. I'll come when the sovereign, decreed plan of God the Father is finished. I'll move you out of that job when I'm supposed to move you. I'll provide you in this way when I'm supposed to provide for you. Because he has given us all that we already need in him. Father, thank you that what Moses and Elijah discussed with you about your departure and about what you did at Jerusalem, about your death and resurrection, thank you that that enables us post the cross to live in such a way where the goal is your glory, not the goal is us. We live and strive and persevere for the why, not the what. Father, would you help us to remember this? We are needy people. Father, would you lift our eyes off of here for even a moment that would give us the stamina for this week? God, would we drive our hearts not just into sermons on Sunday, but into your word where you speak so that we can hear God of the universe say, hey, listen, pay attention. God, would you free us from the enslavements to these other loves and things that we worship functionally as God, which will never add up and never fulfill and never follow through for us. God, help us to see the greater glories that we're called into as the family of God. It's for the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.